Bibles, if you would, and open them to Philippians chapter 3. And the text for tonight's message is from these first three verses of the chapter. But I, I would like rather to reflect, first of all, another scripture, a statement that Paul makes that you're very familiar with, which could be used for the text of the message tonight because it goes along with the same theme. And this is in Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 5, where Paul says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? In the New Testament, there are four gospel accounts that are biographies of Jesus' life. There is one historical book, which is the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and that tells about how the apostles uh, preached the message of the gospel and started churches in the first century. Then we have the last book of the Bible, that's the book of Revelation. Of course, we're studying that on Sunday nights. That's a book about prophecy, and it tells us all about how Christ will bring this uh, church age to an end, and then how the whole age, the whole world is going to come to an end. Sandwiched in between Acts and Revelation are a series of little books that are really letters. They're called epistles. And the epistles were written for the development of the church and also for the development of individual Christians. They were written to help us to do what Paul said in that verse that I just read in 2 Corinthians. And that is for us to make sure that we are really in the faith, to examine ourselves. And it's really a message that says that every day of our lives, we need to check up on ourselves to see that if our faith in Christ is genuine. And this is essentially what Paul is saying in this third chapter of Philippians. He tells them to stop for just a moment, to consider their lives, to think about it, and really to examine themselves and to see, did something really happen to me? Is there a change in me? Am I different from what I was before? And Paul gives us some markers that help to tell us the difference between us and them. And I'm speaking of the difference between people that are saved and people that are lost. And that's the theme of the message tonight, the difference between us and them. Let's stand, please, if you would. We're going to read the first three verses of Philippians chapter 3. Tonight's message is a two-part message. He writes in verse number 1, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for those who are here. And Lord, help us to learn something from this message tonight to really see a difference between us and them and the things that we're talking about tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I've really enjoyed our study on Sunday mornings in the Gospel of Matthew. If you want to find out if you're a Christian, one of the things that you can do is just turn to the book of Matthew, read about the life of Christ and the things that he did, and if you are a Christian and the light of the Gospel has truly shined into your heart, then you'll start to display some of the characteristics that we find in the book of Matthew. But one of my favorite characters in the book of Matthew is uh, the preacher named John the Baptist. All four of the gospel writers talk about John because he had a very important ministry. 
uh, his ministry was important to Christ's ministry because he was sent to prepare the way and to really uh, turn the religious thinking of the day upside down and get people prepared for the message that Christ would bring. John was one of those no-holds-barred preachers. I mean, he, uh, he was nearly the exact opposite of everything that we think that a preacher ought to be. I mean, we think that a preacher ought to have soft hands and he ought to be a very compassionate person. He really ought not to ruffle any feathers. And best of all, he is to say things that really make people feel good about themselves. And uh, if we look at preachers today, we would probably think that the number one qualification to become a preacher is that you have to be a crowd pleaser. John was not that. When John preached, people weren't comfortable with the message that he preached, and that's because he called people to repentance. And he was teaching the people that there really is a difference in someone who says that he follows God and someone who is a believer. There's a difference between that person and another person who knows nothing at all about God. And so John told people that a change has to take place in your life. There's a turning away from sin and there's a real demonstration that something different has happened to you. Now essentially, what John did in his ministry is exactly what Paul did in his He started to draw a line between false professors and those who really know Christ. And when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to John for baptism, he said, the first thing that you have to do is you have to bring forth some kind of fruit, show me that you've truly repented, and then I'll baptize you. Well, Paul uses the same tactic here in the verses in Philippians, though he's not talking about baptism, but he is getting very personal and very detailed about what a Christian really is. And instead of doing like John did, John said, you prove to me, show me that you really are saved, that you really have repented of your sin. Paul goes a little bit deeper than that. He doesn't say, show me. He says, the thing you need to do is show yourself. Prove it to yourself that you're really a Christian. So he says, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Well, how do we do that? Well, I want to show you three ways from this passage that we can tell a difference between us and them. Tonight, I'm only going to get to one of those ways. This way, first of all, the way that there's a difference, or we know there's a difference between us and them, is the right way that we worship. There's a difference in the way that we worship. Now, the contrast is the difference between those that Paul speaks of in verse number 2 and those that are described in verse number 3. In verse number 2, he's talking about them, and in verse number 3, he's talking about us. He says in verse 2, "...beware of dogs." Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Now, let's take just a moment to talk about them. These are the ones that Paul calls dogs. Now, I said just a moment ago that John the Baptist and Paul's ministries were very similar. They were the same types of preachers, and you couldn't see it any better than a demonstration of the way that both of them talked, the way they uh, spoke about false professors and about unbelievers and false teachers. John the Baptist called those hyper-religious, self-righteous Jews vipers, and the Apostle Paul calls them here dogs. Now, you might think uh, that I'm harsh, that, uh, you know, sometimes I stand in the pulpit and, and I identify those that I believe are, are teaching false doctrines, and so I might even name some names. I may name a name of a heretical preacher of some heretical church. I don't apologize for doing that. I think that's what we're supposed to do. That's a New Testament precedent. 
And I don't think that we're supposed to be nice to people and, and nice to doctrines or about doctrines when, when people teach things that if they are believed, that they leave people in their sins and they send people to hell. I don't want to be nice about that. I want to be kind in one sense of the word, to people who would teach such things. And it doesn't make any difference whether I'm talking about Joel Osteen or if I'm speaking about the Pope or I'm speaking about some Ayatollah somewhere in the Middle East. The result of the doctrine is exactly the same. And that is, if people don't trust Christ and understand who he is, they will die and go to hell. And so John the Baptist wasn't afraid to mention names and he wasn't afraid to call them vipers and the Apostle Paul wasn't afraid to call them dogs. And I want you to understand here two words in this second verse that are very highly insulting to the people that Paul references. The first one is that word dogs. Now that's a very familiar word to the Jews because that's a word that they use to describe Gentiles. They hated Gentiles. And uh, they referred to them as dogs or like a pack of dogs because in those days, they were used to the dogs that were running around the streets and they would eat just about anything that there was to eat. Sometimes the dogs would run in packs and when they were very hungry, they could even attack people. And so the Jews, who were very strict in their dietary laws, they referred to Gentiles as dogs because Gentiles would eat just about anything. Now, this is a difference, of course, between these sweet little house dogs that we have today You know, those little dogs that people have in their house and they sit on their lap and they drink out of their glass and they're well-kept and they're well-groomed and you put a little bitty bed right there beside yours in the bedroom to make sure the dog is very nice and comfy. uh, Dogs in those days, dogs to these people were filthy animals. And it was a terrible insult to call someone a dog. But that's what Paul does here. But he doesn't even stop with the word dog. There's a second word that he uses that's perhaps even worse than that word, at least worse to a Jew, because he says, beware of the concision. A concision there is actually a a reference to the Jewish practice of circumcision. And the word concision actually means mutilation. And that was a very high insult to these Jewish people because that attacked the very foundation of this custom that they practiced that set them apart, they said, as the people of God. But here, Paul says that that is mutilation because that's exactly what it had become. They had forsaken the principle that God had given them in that. They had changed things around. It no longer had the sanctity that it had when God gave that act. And so the Jews had distorted the meaning, so what they were doing was nothing more than butchering the body. And that's what Paul is saying. And these are words that you would not expect from someone like the Apostle Paul, especially being so steeped in Pharisaical doctrine before he became a Christian. And we'll see that a little bit later in the few messages coming up as we go on in this third chapter. So these are terrible insults that Paul is hurling at these people, and he does it because they pervert the gospel of Christ. These are Jews who said Gentile Christians must be circumcised. They have to submit to some right of the law, and if they don't do this, they cannot be saved. And what Paul says, that is perversion. It is subversive to the gospel. And he hated that doctrine and it was so serious to him that he called the circumcision, the people who practiced circumcision, he called it concision or he called it mutilation. The word for circumcision in the Greek means to cut around. And this is a word that means to cut off. 
And so Paul says the Jews have mutilated the gospel of Christ because they've tried to combine some form of work, something added to what Christ has done, and that's how a person is saved. And that was so serious an affront to the gospel of Christ that when Paul addressed the very same problem among the Galatian Christians, he said that anybody who preaches a gospel like that, anybody who preaches this perverted gospel, which is exactly what it was, he said, anybody who preaches that, let that person be accursed. And he's saying, let God cut them off. And he means, let God send that kind of person to hell because of what he preaches. Now, do you see, though, how things have changed today? We're a, lot, we're a lot nicer than that. I'm really a lot nicer than that. If, if the Apostle Paul was standing in my place today and he was faced with Roman Catholicism on every side, if he was faced with a Roman, or with a Mormon church, rather, that's right down the street... If he was faced with Jehovah Witnesses that knock on hundreds of doors every single day, and if he was faced with literally hundreds of denominations that have included some kind of work salvation in the gospel that they preach, if he was faced of all that, then he would say, he would stand in the pulpit tonight and he would say, beware of those mutilators. Beware of those filthy dogs. Beware of those emissaries of Satan. And he'd say, let them be a curse. Let them be doomed to hell for that message that they're preaching. Now, you really have to examine this, and you have to understand what Paul is saying here. Verse 2 has two words here that are the roughest insults that he could come up with, the very worst things that he could say about these Judaizers. And in fact, he turns the tables on them because he uses the same words that they use for the Gentiles. And he says, you're not a bit better. He said, you're worse than they are. And so he attacks even the very foundation of their false religion. So Paul is not a preacher. He says, you don't need to worry about this. Don't really worry about it. I mean, there are many paths to God. Choose the path that you like because we're all going to the same place. Not the Apostle Paul. He says there is a difference between us and them. We're saved by grace through faith without the deeds of the law. And so he would say, we are solo Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Sola Christa, Christ alone. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. That's what Paul preached. And so any other way is is a cursed way, and he calls it mutilation of the gospel. And that means from Catholicism to Mormonism, from the Watchtower to Adventism, from Islam to Buddhism, to or from anything other than Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. We're to be different. And there is a difference between us and them. And it's a difference in the way that we worship. Now, anybody who gets mad at me and says, well, that's unchristian. You really ought not to talk about that. Well, I'd say, well, take it up with John the Baptist. Take it up with the Apostle Paul. Take it up with Jesus Christ himself because he's the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Take it up with him because that's what he preached. But let's take this idea of worship and let's narrow this down just a little bit further. How do we differ in worship? Well, anyone who comes from, say, a Catholic church or from Catholicism to a Baptist church would immediately notice that there's a difference in the way that we worship. The uh, Holman Bible Dictionary defines worship this way. It says, Worship is human response to the perceived presence of the divine, a presence which transcends normal human activity and is holy. Now, the operative words in that definition are the words human response. 
And our human response in a Baptist church is very much different than what it is in a Catholic church. But what we must understand here is although it is a human response, yet it has to be a correctly informed response because it has to be one that is in the, in the spirit and the truth of God's word. It has to be the right kind of response in order to be true worship. Now, if we look at that any other way, if we're trying to please any other person besides God, then we're not really worshiping God at all. In fact, what we're doing is worshiping ourselves. And that's exactly what Paul describes in the book of Romans when he talks about people there and he, and he says how vile men had changed the worship of God. God was being worshipped according to their own desires. Now, this particular scripture I'm going to read now is a part of a much larger discourse on this, a longer one. But here's what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, we may not be guilty of making idols of men and birds and beasts and four-footed creeping things, like Paul says in the 23rd verse of that same chapter. But any time that we change worship to please us instead of pleasing God, then we're actually worshiping us instead of worshiping God. So how do we differ from those who worship wrongly? Well, let's look at this. We worship by desire and not by duty. One of the things that's really different today with Baptist people and our Baptist forefathers, and I'm talking about going all the way back to the time of the Apostle Paul, is the idea that we have about the Lord's Day. Now, it's amazing to me that there are many Baptists today who object to the terminology, the Lord's Day. Now, if you look at our church statement of faith, there's an article. It's article number 15 of the statement of faith. And the title of it is, Of the Observance of the First Day of the Week. And the text of that article says, We believe that the first day of the week is the Lord's Day, and is to be kept sacred to religious purposes by abstaining from all secular labor except by scriptural provision and avoiding sinful recreations by the devout observance of all the means of grace, both private and public, and by preparation for that rest that remains for the people of God. Well, many Baptist people have abandoned recognition of the very first day of the week as being the Lord's Day. Now it's popular in churches today to accommodate the lifestyles of the, of the up-and-coming and so they give people the option of worshiping on a Friday night or coming to a Saturday night service instead of going to a Sunday service. And preachers defend that by saying that, well, it doesn't matter what day you worship, and put that in quotation marks, the day that you worship, they said it really doesn't matter. But all that they've done is actually change God's way of worship to their way of worship. Now, the New Testament is very clear about this, that the day of worship is to be an observance that sets aside one special day of the week, the first day of the week, and this is the day that all people who claim to be Christians come together and they worship God. That is a day that belongs to God. Many of our forefathers referred to that day as the Christian Sabbath. But there are modern preachers today that say, well, that's the old law. There is no such thing as a Christian Sabbath today. And I'll remind you, in case you're wondering about this, the word Sabbath does not mean seventh. It doesn't mean seventh day or anything like that. The word Sabbath actually means rest. 
So the principle of the law is still in effect today. And very clearly, the word was changed, or the day, I should say, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, and we see that continually throughout the New Testament. This is the day that people came to worship, and it was called the Lord's Day. Now, not only do we have that problem, but there's also a problem of activities on the Lord's Day, and we are guilty of abusing the Lord's Day with our activity. And perhaps we're guilty of that, many of us are worse than abandoning the Lord's Day altogether. So the idea that we have today is that we confine our worship or we confine the Lord's Day to two hours of church on Sunday morning, and then the rest of the day is ours. Now let's go back to that statement of faith. We have a statement of faith because we believe that that it's built upon spiritual principles. And, And the first line of the statement of faith says, the Lord's day is to be kept sacred to religious purposes. So what we do as a matter of duty is that we show up for a couple of hours to give the Lord his due on Sunday morning and then we abandon the rest of the day because it's our day. It's no longer the Lord's day. Now, those that worship on Friday night or Saturday night, there's no doubt in my mind they worship out of duty. They're doing that because they think it's, they're supposed to worship. But well, here's a question that I think that we really ought to ask ourselves, is do we desire really to worship? I mean, do we, do we come uh, to church because this is a spiritual response, or do we really have to force ourselves to go to church? Now, some of you that are raised in were raised in Christian homes, you mean you know what I mean when I say about being forced to go to church. Now, some of uh, that I think is good for us. I mean, uh, when you're a child and you're learning, it's good to be forced to go to church. I mean, that's the way that you get trained. You know, I learned to enjoy church. But before I did, going to church was just something that interrupted fun time. I mean, going to church means that I have to sit and listen to another sermon. You know exactly what I mean, some of you. But that changed when I became a Christian because I learned more and I understood more. And then church became a place not where I go because of my duty, but I go to church because I desire to go to church. I want to be in church. Now, uh, this is probably not too applicable to the the, uh, Wednesday night crowd, but there might even be somebody here tonight that you hold on to going to church because it's your duty. You'd rather be someplace else tonight Perhaps you would, I don't know. But you're doing what you think Christians are supposed to do. Your duty is to be here in church. As I say, for the Wednesday night crowd, I really don't think that's as much as a problem as it is for just the Sunday morning people. People that show up for two hours on Sunday morning and you don't see them the rest of the week. But let's not just confine ourselves to talking about attending church. What about our private worship? I mean, do you read your Bible because that is a duty to read it? Or do you desire to read God's word? Do you pray because it's a duty for you to pray? Or do you pray because you really love communicating with God? You love to talk with him? See, there's a huge difference between the spontaneity of desire and this rigidness of doing the duty that we're supposed to do. Now, let's back up here to what Paul says in Philippians 3 when he's describing Judaizers. What is it that they do? Well, Jesus describe their attitude of worship in Matthew chapter 23. I'm not going to turn there tonight, but in Matthew chapter 23, you'll learn there that the description of the Judaizers, uh, these are people that 
are desirous to exalt themselves rather than exalting God. They're self-pleasers rather than they are uh, uh, self-pleasers rather than God-pleasers, and they're men-pleasers. And so what they what they did was they had a hypocrisy of duty to the law instead of highly regarding and looking at what the person that the law is supposed to magnify. So their desire was not to God, it is to men. And that's the same way that worship has been changed in our churches today. Worship is done to accommodate us rather than from a desire to please God. But this is the very thing that differentiates us from them. It's a desire to worship God, not the duty to worship him. We worship him in spirit and in truth. I was just amazed when one of our visitors came to me and told me that she was upset with the church that she was attending because instead of the pastor showing up to preach on Sunday like they expected him to, the pastor decided that he was going to attend a 49ers game on Sunday. Now, with the season that they just had, that was blasphemy to start off with. But, but, but who, are we, who are we talking about here? I mean, who are we talking about here? The difference between us and them should be a demonstrable difference. Our desire is to worship God above all other activities that we can do. And you can insert right there all other activities that are not for religious purposes that are done on the Lord's Day. Now, some of you may ask me, well, what about taking a nap? And what about reading the paper on Sunday? Well, I'm I'm speaking here not about the rigidness of the law. I'm speaking here about a desire to reserve Sunday as God's Day. Now, let's move on just a little bit to another consideration about worship, the difference between us and them. Secondly, is we worship with meaning and not with means. When Paul speaks to these Philippians, he warns them against the dogs, and these are people who are steeped in religious formalism. One of the things that Jesus said about the Pharisees he said, they will enlarge the borders of their garments. He says, they, they'll make broad their phylacteries. Remember last week when I had that picture up here about the, the uh, Jewish person who had that little box on his head and that was, had the scriptures contained in that little box? Well, they also have a practice of putting on their phylacteries. I have a picture of that tonight that I uh, took of some Jews that were at the Western Wall and here they are putting on their phylacteries and these, are these leather straps that he's wrapping around his arm right there. Those are the phylacteries and they would do that before they would begin to, to pray and before they would read the Torah. The Jews also, uh, especially in Jesus' time, wore tassels on the borders of their garments and that was for the purpose of reminding them that they were a very distinct people. But what they would do is they would take their garments and where he talks about they make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments, they would make the garment wide and that would show that they were a very distinct people. But in doing so, instead of doing that because it was something that was pleasing to God, they were rather being hypocritical about it, and they wanted to show people just how righteous and holy and how spiritual that they were. And so the broader that the garment was and the more phylacteries that you could put on, that showed how holy that you really were. Now, the Orthodox Jews today still retain some of that. And uh, if you go to Israel and you see them walking around the streets, you can identify them. They have the big, black, broad-brimmed hats, and they wear black coats. You know, I asked uh, our Jewish guide about one of those hats. I thought, well, maybe I'd like to buy one of those and take it home just as a, as a souvenir. I said, uh, uh, how much does one of those cost? And she said, well, those hats are about two to $3,000. 
And I said, I don't think I'll be taking one of those home. But they, they wear those kinds of things because that sets them apart. And it's really not worship to God. It's to show how holy that we are. Now, this is the kind of formalism that really doesn't speak of God. It speaks of the person. And it's just a pious demonstration of spirituality. And then Jesus also uh, spoke out about the heathen practices in prayer. He said they use vain repetitions in their prayer. And he means they use all these stock phrases that they repeat over and over and over again. And they really have no meaning at all to the speaker. They're just saying something. Well, those same kinds of things today, we, we in fact do have in worship. It's not peculiar to the Pharisees. I mean, there are liturgies that are used in churches. There are prescribed forms of worship that are purely physical. And they're not spiritual responses. You see this in Roman Catholicism with the Catholicism, uh, rather, with the repetitions of the rosary and the fingering of the beads and saying the Hail Marys and the Our Fathers. All of that is a prescribed form of worship. And then it goes beyond that because the Roman Catholics know how to make people feel religious. I mean, they can make you feel like you're worshiping even if you're not. How do they do that? Well, they have their beautifully ornate buildings. They set up the atmosphere for worship. I mean, you have the stained glass windows. You have the uh, crosses and the crucifixes. And you have the, the statues and the candles. All of that. You have all these aesthetics of worship that they use. And those things are as cold and as dead as the heart of the hearts of the people that use them. And then they even add a layer on top of that. Because they do one of the things similar things that the Orthodox Jews did and the Pharisaical Jews, and that is they separate out the clergy by their clothing. They wear highly distinct clothing, and so they have their robes and they have their mitres. They have special colors that that you can wear depending upon your rank and your privilege, and that is just a display with all these scepters and rings and tassels and all of those things that they use. It's all designed for ritual to say who I am rather than honoring God. So they're looking at the means of worship rather than the meaning of worship. And that's what separates us from them. We come to church for a one-on-one encounter with God. And so we don't need all of these props. We worship God in spirit and truth. That's essentially what Jesus told the woman at the well. She was going to point out to him, the difference between us and you is that you worship in Jerusalem and we worship here at Mount Gerizim. But Jesus set her straight on that because he didn't talk about the place of worship. He rather took her beyond the formalism of worship to the place of the Spirit. He took her to the habitation of the Spirit. And he said, your heart, that's where true worship originates. There's a change in your heart that enables you to come into the presence of God. Outward formalism. All of these other things that people practice in their worship will not make you one inch closer to God. It starts from the inside out, and that's having a relationship with him. So that's why both Jesus and Paul rejected Judaizers and all of their formalities. Now let me give you just one more thought on why we differ in the area of worship, and that is we worship with fear and not with the flesh. And with fear, I mean that we worship with reverence for God. God is the one who's paramount. It's not the feelings of the flesh. One of the things that it's really most distressing to me is how when people view worship, how that uh, they, they worship in order to appeal to their fleshly appetites. And, and probably the most noticeable area 
uh, where people do this is with music. I mean, one of the most common complaints that you have of, with people that, that uh, worship at a different style and so forth, they'll come and tell, well, we really don't like your music. Now, on one hand, you have the staid, uh, straight, straight-laced, stiff, hyper-fundamentalist who tells you that your music is not godly music unless it's our music. And your music has to contain certain types of rhythms. There has to be a strict adherence to the movement and to the beat. And all of that has to be very careful. And if it's careful, if it strays or alters from anything that we've already approved, then it's not godly music. And I would submit that those people would be very uncomfortable outside of an American setting where they don't have anything where you couldn't use an orchestra minus drums or where you don't have anything much more than a piano and an organ. And heaven help you if you stray too far on the polyphonic capabilities of an electric piano. I mean, that's really getting bad. But then on the other side, you have this wild, outlandish, beating, pulsating music of what we call, it's a misnomer to call it gospel rock and gospel rap. And uh, you have that type of music. I was in one church where they had to protect the people from the drums. They put up a sheet of plexiglass and enclosed the drums so that they didn't do irreparable harm to anybody who was sitting 20, within 20 rows of the, of the front of the church. So you have all that kind of music. And stuff that just wild and drives you crazy and beats your head to death. But there are people who choose their church based on how music makes them feel. Now, that is a sensual response of feelings and has nothing at all to do with the response to God. I mean, the very same people can ignore what's being preached from the pulpit. I mean, and they don't listen to see, is it the Word of God? I mean, is it truth being preached there? What really matters is, what's the music like? Is it exciting? Is it upbeat? Does it, does it make me shake and groove? And so they look at the music. That's, that's the thing that, that draws people to the church. Well, folks, that is nothing but fleshly worship. That's not spiritual worship. And it doesn't really matter which side of music that you come down on. Whether it's on the hyper-fundamental side or it's where on the clear outlandish side, it doesn't make any difference. If it's a fleshly response to what's heard, it's not worshiping God. It's worshiping us. So what do churches do today? And, and this happens in Baptist churches today. They divide the church down the middle. And so they have a traditional crowd and they have the contemporary crowd. And the traditional crowd comes to church on one particular time of the day and the contemporary crowd comes to church at a different time of the day. I'd like for somebody to explain to me how that is a godly approach to worship. How can you be worshiping God when you can divide the congregation of the church right down the middle and they can't even sit together because they're divided about music. You couldn't paint a picture any better that worship is for me and not for God. I mean, this is a graphic display of it. So the difference between us and them is that God is to be central and not me. Now, I have more to say about that in part number two of the the message, but we really have to decide what worship is. Is worship me or is it God? Is this in the image of God or is it in the image of me? I mean, have we made our worship into creeping things and four-footed beasts and birds and animals and all that? Or does our worship leave God on the throne where he should be and leave me right down in the dust where I should be? That comes up next week, too, in the difference between us and them. 
Well, let me close this part of the message with this last thought concerning worship. Worship is not just form and function. And worship is really not even just reverential fear. It's not to regard God as being so far removed from me that God's really nothing more than an idol to me, something that I really can't approach and that I really can't have a relationship with. Worship also equals my realization of God's personal touch. Worship is my realization of God's personal touch. The difference between me and them is that Christ is my personal Savior. He's so real, he is so near to me, that I can almost feel like he's touching me. You ever felt the presence of God in that way? Have you ever been listening to a sermon maybe, or reading your Bible, even listening to some some good music, something where you're really worshiping God. And as you're listening, the hair stands up on the back of your neck. I mean, just something, something, a tear comes into your eye as you listen, or a lump comes in your throat. And I'm not advocating a, an emotional response to anything here, but what I am saying, there are many, many times for the person who really knows the Lord that you can almost feel like God is right there touching you. You can feel his hand on you. It's just that closeness. That's the difference between us and them. The response is not because of some outward stimulus that's there. The response is because of what is in our heart. Now, Paul explained that, or he states it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, that's the difference between you and them. There are three ways that this scripture shows us that there's a difference between us and them. And the first one is the right way that we worship. There's a difference in the way that we worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word, and Lord, we do pray that We would all examine ourselves, make sure that we are in the faith. Has something happened in our hearts that makes us different from what we were before? Lord, help us to continually look at our faith and see, is it real? Are we true believers? And Lord, you'll give us the confidence that we are as we serve and as we worship you. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.